Is everybody good? You guys hear me? Awesome. Um, just uh, by way of getting started, it was brought to my attention that I have failed two weeks in a row to introduce myself, just in case you don't know who I am. I'm also going to be teaching for uh, the next three weeks after this, so I figure you might want to know who I am if you don't know. My name is Tyler. Uh, my wife, Elizabeth, and I have been here for almost eight years, um, was saved through Faith Community Church um, out of a life of heinous, heinous sin, and uh, thankful to be a part of this church. Like I said, saved out of this church, have been growing in this church, and uh, couldn't imagine us being anywhere else. By God's grace, I'm in seminary with this guy right here, trying to keep up with him, and so very thankful, but um, just so you guys kind of know who I am, and I can't begin to tell you how much of a joy it is to get to open up God's Word with you the last couple weeks and the next four weeks, so... Let's go ahead and pray, and we will get started. So if I were to ask you this question, or anybody were to ask you this question, a coworker, your children, a family member, how would you respond? And the question is this, what are the foundations of the church? If somebody that you worked with, if you were trying to share your faith with them, asked you, why do you focus on the things that you do at church? Would you know what to say? Would you have a biblical basis for answering that question? Are you prepared to respond as 1 Peter 3.15 commands, where it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Would you be prepared to answer the question, what are the foundations of the church? Why do you practice the things that you practice? And the reason I ask this is it's an important thing, right? Why is it important? Well, what we do as a foundation, or what the foundations of what we do as a church are important because it's the blueprint for how we will worship, right? Right? also because it's God's church. It's His bride. As the church, we are commanded to do things that bring Him glory and honor. So we need to understand what these foundational truths are. On top of that, we deal with many different denominations, different ideas, different philosophies of ministry, different views, right? Or even more than that, we see that the church today is just simply weak. It's a weakened church. And people need answers. People want answers. I can't tell you how many people that I have spoken to who have come here simply because they heard the sermon once and they felt like they were actually being fed for the first time in their Christian life. They left another church because all they were being fed was watered-down, man-made philosophy or a simplified version of the gospel. Right? Your Your best life now. God is love. All these other different views of what the church is actually or what they think the church is, but it's not actually that. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. And keep in mind that he wrote this around the, the 50s, which is telling as it is that the church has not grown a whole lot. It's continued to progress or get worse. But listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the church. He says, The church has been trying to preach morality and ethics without the gospel as a basis. It has been preaching morality without godliness. And it simply does not work. It never has, and it never will. 
And the result is that the church, having abandoned her real task, has left humanity more or less to its own devices. That's a pretty strong indictment about what the church looks like, and I don't think that it's any different today. If anything, again, it's gotten worse. He says the church has abandoned her real task and has left humanity more or less to its own devices. As a church, we've been called to proclaim the truth of God. We've been called to proclaim His excellencies, right? And when we don't do that according to His standard and His word, we have abandoned the true task. And we have left a a groping world to its own devices with no hope. And this is, unfortunately, the bleak reality of our church today. With a focus more on programs and entertainment to feed unbelievers rather than believers, we have been left with a weak and immature church at best, right? Just look around. How many churches, does anybody know the count? I, I think this way, I don't know why. Has anybody counted the amount of churches from the exit off of 575 when you take Town Lake or uh, I guess it's, uh, Tr- or not Trickham, but Arnold Mill? Do you know how many churches there are by the time you get here? Eleven. Of course you would know that. Eleven churches. All different. All completely different. Different views, different beliefs, different ideals. The church is no longer devoted to the commandments of Scripture, but rather they are devoted to gaining notoriety and attracting as many people as possible. If you don't believe me, watch a sermon of a man standing at, first, or at home plate in the middle of Yankee Stadium. That's what he wanted to This man, of course, talking about your best life now, filling stadiums of people and filling them with false hope and belief, a false gospel. Substance that comes from the Word is replaced with anecdotes and illustrations. Purity of the church is compromised in order to appeal to the world. Often it begins with leadership and makes its way to the congregation. And as a result, the church, as Jones put it, has abandoned her real task, the task which is to be a beacon of light in a dark world. Now the church is just as dark as the rest of the world. Or we can say it this way, Instead of the true believers bringing great news, which we're called to do, it becomes the blind leading the blind. And it's sad because the only answer to this question is actually very simple. The call to the people of God is not an unattainable or even difficult task to function the way that God prescribed us to do. Like I said, it's very simple. And it's seen in His Word, right? We need to see that God did in fact design the body to perform and function in a particular way. Not however we see fit, not however we choose to, but there is a particular way that God has set up His program for His church to conduct themselves and to bring Him glory. Charles Spurgeon says this, Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than His church. Therefore, being His, let us belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. If those who are Christ's refrained even for a generation from numbering themselves with His people, there would be no visible church. No ordinances maintained, and I fear very little preaching of the gospel. I might even take that a step further and say no preaching of the gospel. 
Because a false gospel is a false gospel. It is the, there is no true gospel there. So today, I want us to see what God has designed or how he has designed his church. If you guys have your Bibles, flip over to Acts 2.41. We're going to look at God's blueprint for the church. Acts 2.41. And just by way of catching us up here, we need to make sure that we understand the context of what's going on here. The book of Acts picks up right after Luke finishes, right? Luke wrote his gospel, and he continues this story, his story in uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we see in the very beginning that Christ um, was taken up, it says in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We see that Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, So a lot is happening here. And then we jump to chapter 2. And we see here in the very first verse, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see here that the Spirit that was promised by Jesus has come upon them now. And after being filled by the Spirit, Peter begins immediately to teach those who had gathered at Pentecost. And he delivers a very particular message. What is that message? It's a gospel, right? It's a message of salvation. He speaks about who Jesus was. He speaks about what he had done in his life, in his perfect, in his perfect life the miracles that he had performed, and how he was wrongly accused and killed. But, how he rose again, right? And was taken up in glory to be at the right hand of the Father. And that takes us to verse 37, and I want to read verses 37 through 40, so follow along. It says this, when they, uh, Now, when they had heard this, what we just talked about, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is a proper response to a gospel call, is it not? What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So we see here that Peter again shares the gospel. He indicts these people for their neglect, for even killing and accusing Jesus Christ. But then he turns and says, But here's what you must do. Repent and be baptized. We see forgiveness of sins here. But more importantly, we see that it requires faith in Jesus and what he had accomplished in his life, or excuse me, his death and resurrection because of his sinless, perfect life. Again, the gospel clearly, clearly given. But what do you not see here? You don't see 
words of wisdom coming from man. You don't see smoke and mirrors like you do in modern churches, right? You don't see flashing lights. You see a simple but profound giving of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing more than that. And so like I said earlier, it's simple. It's not that difficult. We do not have to fool people into coming into the church. We simply need to let God do the work and proclaim His Gospel to a dying world. Verse 41, follow along. So it says, So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Many of these churches who want to count numbers, right? That's their prerogative is we want to see how many we can get into the church. If they read this, it would be a pretty simple answer for them. It just says, Those who had received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, what an indictment to the modern church. He continues, And they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who were believed, and all who believed, were together and had things, all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, ha- as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing nothing other than the birth of the church. This is indeed the birth of the church. Those who had been united in one common thing, faith in Jesus Christ, that was their commonality, and out of that would flow everything. So with this context in mind, this morning we will look at this description of the early church. And keep in mind, this is not a prescription. This is a description. We want to keep that in mind. It doesn't say you have to do these things in order to be the church. But what we will say is that these things do produce a healthy church. Just want to be clear about that. We want to see that God has provided a simple, although profound blueprint or foundation for the church with the hope that it will grow, build itself up in love, and testify to his name, which will bring him glory. So this morning we're going to see that Luke identifies four devotions of the early church to which we can model. The first thing that we want to see here is that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. So that leads me to a question then. What is it that the apostles taught? You guys tell me. What is it that the apostles were taught? If it says here that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what is it or where is it that the apostles received their teaching? What do you guys think? From Christ, absolutely. But more specifically, what were they taught? We need to understand that, right? What were they taught? The Old Testament, flipped to Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44. And I think it's fitting that we go to Luke because I'm very, very confident that he had this in mind given that he wrote this when he was writing the book of the Acts, that he had this other portion of Scripture in mind. Acts 
or excuse me, Luke 24. Verses 44 through 49 say this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what do you guys see here? What are some things that stand out here as we read through these verses that we see were taught to the apostles? What do you see? Okay. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. Absolutely. The laws, the prophets, and Psalms spoke about Christ and had to be fulfilled, right? They had to be, profi- they had to be fulfilled because they were promised, and God keeps his promises. What else do you notice? Absolutely. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Absolutely. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is offered, right? And significantly, it begins in Jerusalem. It begins with the Jews. If you were here last week, you understand the emphasis that I will put on this, and I'll leave it at that. But it does begin in Jerusalem, and then it will move to the Gentiles. One thing we don't want to miss here is that it said that you are witnesses of these things. Why would Christ say that to the apostles? Why would that be significant to our study this morning? Right. It, witnesses, gives them the authority and it's a prerequisite for apostleship. You guys can see this, don't need to go there, but in Acts 1, 21 through 22, when they're talking about um, replacing Judas, that is one of the things that is a requirement is that you have to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. You had to have been taught by him. And this is absolutely significant. What else do we see here? The giving of the Holy Spirit. That's right. The promise of the Spirit sent from God. Again, what we just read, if you read through what Peter preached after the Spirit came upon him, is much of what we just saw here. Very clear. So we see the Old Testament scriptures are what they were taught. What else were they taught? Well, Jesus is teaching specifically. Flip over to Acts 1.3. Acts 1.3. Acts 1.3 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we see that not only did he teach those who followed him for the, the uh, time of his life, right? All that he taught them, everything that we have recorded in the Gospels. But even more than that, after he resurrected and came back down, he spent 40 days and 40 nights with them, teaching them even more, right? And what does it say that he taught them? About what? The kingdom of God. 
He taught them about the kingdom of God. You don't need to flip there, but in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, he teaches them about the ordinances, right? The Lord's Supper. And even in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 11, he also teaches them about his death, resurrection, and ascension. So the apostles were taught Old Testament scriptures, the fulfillment of it. They were taught specifically by Jesus during his life and his ministry, even after that, his death as well. But then they are also taught through revelation from the Spirit. Through revelation from the Spirit. John 14, 26. Flip over there. John 14, 26. It says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You can also write this down as a reference, John 16, 12 through 15. It's the same idea. But it says that the Spirit would come and would be a helper and to bring remembrance all that he had previously taught them. So the apostles were taught all these things and everything pointed to Christ himself, whether it was the Old Testament, whether it was Jesus himself attesting to himself, or even after where it was the revelation of through the Spirit coming to remind them of the things that they had been taught. So I'll ask you another question then. How does this translate to us today? We're not directly taught by the apostles, are we? What do you think? What do you guys think? The sufficiency of the scriptures, absolutely. Not only do we have the scriptures fulfilled, complete, and whole, to where we can rely on those things, but also keep this in mind. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, Paul telling Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to preach or to teach others also. So we see that line being passed down that there are men who are to teach other men who are to teach other men who are to teach other men. So through the Lord's program, what the apostles were taught is to be entrusted to men who can continue that line of teaching. And it's all founded out of God's word. But more than that, we need to understand this too, that there is a purpose to the teaching of God's word. It's not that we just hear God's word We need to understand what the purpose of the word is for, especially as the church. So first and foremost, it saves man, the word of God, what the apostles taught, saves man from the wrath of God. As we've already seen in Acts 1, 38 through 39, it says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For... The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That means all of us are included in that. And this is of supreme importance, right? Man must first know God intimately and have a relationship with God before anything else. Man must know that he has sinned against a righteous God and that there is a remedy for this. That there is a solution for this. Man must know that Christ gave himself up as a sacrifice for those that would believe in him. We just saw that very clearly in what uh, Peter preached, right? And even Stephen is a great example of that. If you look later on, we won't go there. But 
What a great example. He preached the same thing to his own brothers, his own Jews, right? And what did they do to him? They stoned him simply by proclaiming the truth of what Christ had done and saying, you are the ones that killed him. Romans 10.17 says this, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is only by the hearing of the good news of Christ that man can be saved. But not only does Scripture just save a person from the wrath that they deserve, it is necessary for the believer and for the church to continue in sanctification, right? It's not just initial salvation, but continuing sanctification. Flip over to 2 Timothy 3.16. Second Timothy three sixteen. <clears throat> scripture says this, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in other words, we can take from this that The teaching we receive from these men that's passed down from generation to generation is meant to do multiple things. First, it's meant to give the believer a greater knowledge of God, right? To give the believer a greater knowledge of God. All Scripture is breathed out and profitable for teaching. To serve God, the believer needs to know Him and love Him more each day. And without an intimate relationship, it is impossible to know somebody, right? If you're married in here, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a parent in here, you know what I'm talking about. In order to serve somebody, you have to know them. You have to know their wants, their desires, their needs. And if the Word of God is what we have been given to know our God more intimately, we have to know it inside and out. So we must study and gather information about God through His Word, right? So it gives the believer a greater knowledge of God, but it also realigns the believer to God in times of sin, right? It's what it says. It's Scripture is breathed out and profitable for reproof. It's profitable for reproof. When the believer sins, he needs the word to convict him and to focus him back on God, right? What does Paul talk about the law? How does he describe the law? What does he say about the law and what it did for him? What does he say? If he had not known the law, he would not have known that he was sinning, right? And in the same way... The Word of God shows us our sin. It's a reflection on our hearts. It, um, it shows us our hearts. So it realigns a believer to, God's in time, to God in times of sin. Scripture says about itself that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the soul. And the Word convicts and causes what? What are we to do when we are convicted? Repent. Absolutely. The word convicts, causes repentance, and as a result, a more mature believer and church, right? But it's also meant to realign the believer to a proper understanding of holiness. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction. The believer needs to know what God expects of him, and the word is the standard. I was on my way this morning and I tend to do this a lot, and I have to be reminded what my standard is. But when I drive, I typically go, man, that person can't drive. I would have not done that. Or I would not have responded in that way. 
comparing myself to other people when the other people are not my standard. God's word is my standard. And that's the thing that is the mirror that reflects my sinfulness, right? So it's God's word that is to realign the believer to a proper understanding of holiness. It's to correct us. But it's also to cause the believer to become more like Christ. To become more like Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training in righteousness. Think about this. We do not naturally desire to be good or right, so we need the word of God to teach us how to be righteous, right? How many in here, before you were saved, thought, I got this. I'm good. I'm going to figure this out. Some of you probably said that. I know I said that. But the Word of God taught me that that is a wrong way of thinking. It's God's Word that teaches us to be righteous. It's Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we can have that righteousness imputed to us. The Word of God is also to cause the believer to grow more mature in Christ for the service of others. Verse 17 of 2 Timothy says, So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the word equips us to be better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better sons and daughters. And specifically what we're talking about today in the context of the church, better members of the body. Because the word teaches humility and teaches the believer to take the focus off of ourselves and to invest in others, to serve others, right? Philippians, consider others more significant than yourselves. Simply put, the word is necessary for growth and sanctification. For the sake of time, we won't go there. I have it here, but write this down. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. I'm sure you all have been there many times. But just go through that and see what the word of God does for the believer a beautiful, beautiful illustration of what the Word of God is meant to do. So in a world of false teaching and man-made beliefs, the believer has the only source of absolute truth, right? The only resource that we can go to in order to be a healthy church, and that is God himself and the Word in which he has chosen to reveal to his church. So we see that the first thing that we need to be devoted to, the first thing that the early church was devoted to, was the apostles' teaching Or, in other words, God's word, right? Absolutely. That is the first thing. And I don't think it's coincidence that that's the first thing he puts there, that that's what they were devoted to, because everything flows out of that, right? Everything flows out of that. Next we see that the early church here in Acts 2.42 was devoted to fellowship. Now, when you hear the word fellowship, what comes to mind? What do you guys think? You think about a Sunday potluck? We're in the South, right? That sounds about right. What do you guys think? What's that? Sharing and helping. Absolutely. What else? Spending time together. together. With what purpose? Worship. Worship. What else? Say that again. Accountability. Absolutely. Anything else? This term fellowship can be translated as partnership. And I think the term partnership takes everything that you just said and envelops it. It just puts that all together. 
And it's important to remember this, the setting of the early church. There was the persecution, right, of Jesus. This had just happened. Christ had been crucified in the most heinous and humiliating way we can think of possible. And yet, what were these early believers doing? Well, they were identifying with Jesus Christ. They were identifying with Him in their profession of Him. Again, Stephen is a great example of that. As he was persecuted, right? He was martyred. In other words, there was a high cost in the early church. And I think we need to understand that because we don't really pay a cost today. We gather together freely this morning. We have our sermons recorded and put onto a website. Anybody can listen to it. We don't really pay a cost here in America. We don't. But we need to understand that there are other people in this world that do pay a cost. And in their time, they were paying a cost by identifying themselves with Christ. So the term partnership then was a much stronger term, I think. And we're going to see this great example of a sacrificial commitment to one another. What it meant to actually have a partnership with one another. Acts 2.44 says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In the body, there must be a commitment to sacrifice for the other members of the body. Is there not, right? When the believer is saved, they are permanently part of the fellowship of God. Romans 8 talks about that. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We are always saved, once saved. And because of this, we are called to be committed to the building up of the body. We have a commitment when we are saved. The early church gave up their possessions and their belongings for the sake of the body in a way that expressed their care for the others who were in need. The word tells us to invest in others. Again, Philippians is a great place to go for this. Invest in others, to love others, to consider others more important than ourselves. And think about this. What are the two greatest commandments? What's the first commandment? Love God. What's the second one? Where in there does it say love yourself? Nowhere. The greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength and to love others in the exact same way. If anybody in here has gone on any of the mission trips, you know what this is like. When we go on these mission trips, we're the recipients of kindness and grace. These people open up their homes. People that we had never met before. I remember the first time I ever went. People just opening up their homes for us. Being generous and gracious to give us things that we only were receiving because of our partnership in the gospel. Because of our partnership in Christ. Think about even for my wife and I who just went through adoption and how much the church came around us by encouraging us, by supporting us monetarily, by all sorts of different things. Sacrificing what you guys had for my wife and I and our child. It's the same way that we serve God every day on Sundays, right? When we pass around the plates so that we can give, so that we can give time, we can give sacrificially. Think about when you sit down with somebody who's going through a crisis. A brother or sister who's in sin and you're calling them to repentance. This is a partnership, right? This is a devotion and this is what the church is meant to look like. And what's significant about this, though, is how vastly different this is meant to look from the world. So vastly different. I like to use the example of when I worked at a 
real estate company for about a year. And uh, once a week, we did a, a meeting, I call it a meeting, where uh, a professing believer would stand up and talk about how he was thankful for his job because he was given so many resources and could uh, give back to his church. But then all he did after that was talk about how you need to invest in yourself. You need to invest in yourself. You need to invest in yourself. Be the better person. Be a good person. Read these self-help books. And I couldn't think of, I just, every time he said that, I just could not get past how heavy my heart was thinking if I thought that way, I would not care about anybody else. I would only care about myself. And that's what he was promoting. Just think about yourself. Just try to be the best person you can. That's not what Christ says. He says you need to drop everything for the sake of others. To sum this all up, we see that fellowship is the partnering together of the body for the purpose of serving one another, not serving ourselves. Offering a sacrifice of love. I love that word. It's a sacrifice, right? It's hard work sometimes. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. You don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. It says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a partnership. Stirring one another up to love and good works, right? Reminding one another what we've been called to do from the gospel. And again, sometimes that does include having to call or rebuke a brother or sister who's in sin. Calling them to repentance. Disciplining your children. Right? But we do this because the day is drawing near. We know that Christ will return. And so the way that we show one another, that we love one another, is by doing these things. Serving one another. And the call, beloved, here is to see one another press on to more maturity in Christ. Not being stagnant but growing, pressing on, right? The call is for the church to be devoted to building one another up, to encouraging one another, to greater conformity to Christ-likeness. And it's all for one purpose, because it honors God. Because we know that one day we will see Christ face to face, and so we give up ourselves for the sake of the church, our possessions, our time, our money, everything that we have. we see that we're not only to be devoted to the word, to the apostles' teaching, we're to be devoted to fellowship, but we're also to be devoted to the Lord's table, the Lord's table. You can read it. It's given in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. And this, of course, was a celebration of the work of Christ, right? And it was done to commemorate his death on a regular basis. You can also see in Acts 26, where Paul says there that they uh, once a week partook of this table. And it was, an act to, uh, it was to act as a reminder of Christ's once-for-all sacrificial death. But more than that, it again was an identifying marker for the church and symbolized their union for Christ and one another. It was to set them apart, right? But think about this and how it fits into our lesson. Flip over to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, real quick. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, talking about the fact that the early church devoted themselves to communion and what it was meant to particularly do. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 29 says this. 
Did I write that down right? I think I wrote it down wrong. So, what we see where I was supposed to go was talking about what the purpose of communion was. And the purpose of communion, and if somebody finds that for me, point it. 1 Corinthians 11? Oh, that's because I'm an axe. <laughs> See, right there, sacrificial service. Thank you. Verses 24 through 29 say this, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, here's the important part of what we're talking about. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and, and of, drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what was the purpose of the church partaking in this over and over? What do you guys see here in these verses? What is this? How is this profitable for the church? Simply, it's an obey. Yeah, it's obeying God's command. Absolutely. But what else? Absolutely. It's a reminder of. That's right. Absolutely. So what should that cause in us to do then before each time? What do we do when we take communion every Sunday? What does Shane help us do first and foremost? Examine our hearts. And through this examination, it calls for a reflection of the cross and sin. It demands confession and repentance. Simply put, it's for purity in the church. You guys ever thought about this? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Whenever we have to, sadly, do church discipline, when do we do church discipline? During the Lord's Supper. It's not coincidence that our elders choose that day for that particular reason. It's to cause us to reflect and look at our own hearts, to examine our own hearts, right? And if it's not done in a worthy manner, there is chastening. That's what it says, that you drink and eat judgment to yourself. And listen to this. You don't need to flip there. I'm going to kind of kick it into high gear here because we're starting to run out of time. But if we look at 11, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 22, just a few verses back, we see an example of what happens when you partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen it says this, But in the following instructions, this is Paul, Condemning them, saying, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, even though that's what they're supposed to be doing. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is saying that rather than getting together and supposed to the, and partaking in the Lord's Supper the way you were supposed to, doing it as a unified body, doing it together, doing it to grow as a body together. Some of you go ahead and get started here. Those who don't have any, you're just kind of leaving them aside. They're not getting anything. He says, in other words, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? That is a strong indictment that if we are to do this and we are to do it in God's, the way that God commanded it, together in remembrance of Him as the body, when we don't do that, it says that we despise the church of God. Right? The warning here is clear. When we are clouded with sin or are not taking communion with the right heart, we do it in vain and defile the table. That's why he says when you do this, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. A command for partaking of the Lord's Supper, the command for fellowship, all this is to show the world the unity that exists among believers. Again, it's to show that we're separate, that we are unified as one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's what should be in our hearts and our minds when we gather together to take communion, right? Remembrance of what Christ did in unifying us as one body, bringing us together, separating us out as his body. Acts 2, 46-47 will go on to say, Day by day, continue, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, it just boggles my mind how many churches have to do so many different programs and ideas and uh, just crazy ideas of trying to get people into the church when it says here very clearly that if we just proclaim God's gospel and are obedient to the commands that he's given to us, day by day, there will be those who are added to the church. We don't have to have smoke and mirrors. As the body exemplifies Christ's likeness, the world will see and know that they are different. They will take notice of us. And they will either want to be a part of the body or they will hate us, right? The point here is that as the body comes together, it is always for the purpose of serving God and others, promoting unity, harmony, love, and partnership. And finally, the fourth devotion that the early church was devoted to, devoted to prayer. The final devotion of a healthy church is prayer. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about prayer. Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his, high, at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Let me say that one more time. Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and his highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. 
Prayer, can, uh, prayer to God can be described as the lifeline of the church, right? Why do I say that? Well, the church belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his blood, his death, and his resurrection. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the moment where he can come down and fully redeem his church and um, govern over it. And because of this, the body, the church, relies on him to sustain it. So why would we go to anywhere else? Why would we not constantly be going to him in prayer, right? I think it can be said that an unhealthy church will neglect to trust God and will begin to trust their own efforts or the efforts of men. On the other hand, a healthy church trusts in God's provision and protection. Jesus is the provider of divine guidance, his word and his spirit, and we need to pursue this regularly. We need to go to him regularly. Because God knows all things, controls all things, sustains all things, Ephesians 1, read all that, we can trust him. Because he is the author of salvation and the giver of life, we can trust him. Because he was pleased to pour out his wrath on his son, we can trust him. Because he is all-powerful and perfect in righteousness, holy, no sin, right? We can trust him. So where else would we turn? Nowhere. Nowhere. Only to him. We see a great example of prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul tells the Ephesians, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Does your prayer look anything like this for the saints, for the church, for the body? That according to His riches, we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner beings. That Christ would dwell richly in each one of us. That we would be rooted and grounded in love. That we would have strength to comprehend with one another all of His glory. The breadth, the length, the height and depth. All that there is to know about Christ. Do we pray this way for one another? We ought to. Paul's example of prayer for the church is a great pattern to follow. As the body prays for one another, they are to pray for God to, prove, uh, to provide strength and power to persevere as believers. Think about what Raymond Choi was just sharing with us just a couple weeks ago. A dear brother who is really sacrificing, really going through what it means to be a true believer over there, right? We need to pray for brothers like this who are going through these difficulties, that he would be rooted and grounded in Christ alone so that he could sustain this persecution. And as the body gathers to pray for one another, the unity and affection that binds them together will be found in a love for Jesus. We cannot neglect this command because it ultimately turns us individually and corporately to rely completely upon God. That is a healthy church a church who is unified in relying on our lifeline, which is Christ. Wouldn't be a sermon without a Johnny MacArthur quote, so I'll throw it in here. 
God-honoring prayer is motivated by a number of factors, including a yearning to fellowship with the Lord and bring glory to Him, a dependence on God for His provision, a need for heavenly wisdom in the midst of trials, a plea for deliverance in the face of trouble, a longing to find relief from anxiety and fear, a desire to express thanksgiving to God for His goodness, a need to confess sin, a yearning to see the salvation of unbelievers, and a desire for spiritual growth, both for oneself and for other Christians. God-honoring prayer is motivated by these factors. So it's simple. Prayer is necessary for the body and is vital to its growth. First, on the inside, as prayer shapes our hearts and minds, as we go to His Word and we ask that He change us from the inside out, right? But then outwardly, as our actions are influenced by the way that we think and are molded and shaped by God's Word and how we serve one another. So we see that prayer needs to be not only individual but corporate, right? So in conclusion, we see that a devotion to biblical teaching instructs us and leads us to maturity as believers. And as the church grows together in their knowledge of the word, it leads to a devotion of fellowship. We're all individuals, all serving our own desires, our own wants as unbelievers, but when the word of God changes us and grabs our hearts and makes us like Christ, it unifies us in the body and again leads to a devotion to fellowship that is produced that produces a desire to sacrifice for one another. And this love for the body results in a devotion to unity. That we would want to stand apart by partaking in uh, a worthy manner the communion, the remembrance of what Christ did. Doing this in obedience to Him, but also to be set apart, to be separate and to be different as the body. And this unity sets apart the church from the world, and it's because a healthy church is devoted to prayer, prayer in which is dependent upon the true and mighty God. So this is it. Again, it's a simple blueprint. We don't have to have programs. We don't have to have fancy ideas or things to trick people to coming in every Sunday. We simply need to be devoted to what Christ said to do, which is to be devoted to these things. Be devoted to His Word, where we're informed, right? Be devoted to unity as the body, fellowshipping, giving up our sacrifices for one another. Devoted to His ordinances, baptism and partaking in the Lord's Supper, that we would examine our hearts. That's why we take it on a regular basis. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? But then showing our devotion through prayer to Him because we're only dependent upon Him. That's it. Thank you, guys.